Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 45. And this psalm is very simply known as the Royal Wedding. The last two weeks we looked at Psalm 42 and 43, which was in many ways an individual lamentation or lament about hardship and distress. And there is a continuing theme within this section of the psalm, Psalm 44 repeats much of what we've already looked at, and so I took the liberty of moving on to Psalm 45, and I'll be very honest with you, in a cursory reading of Psalm 45, there would probably be a lot of questions, and this is why it's helpful to have time and resources to study and to better understand what God's Word says to us. I am by no means a scholar or a theologian. I am dependent upon the study of others to, to understand what I can't get from a normal reading. But Psalm 45 has been said to be the most unique psalm in the entire collection. It is unlike any other song, poem, or word of praise. It is accumulated for us in the book of Psalms. It takes place at a royal wedding and it evokes all the sights and sounds and movements and splendor and emotion of such an important occasion. You know, just a few weeks ago, my son was married. And as I looked out amongst the crowd and as I dealt with my own emotion, I was able to say this is an incredibly emotional experience. When we go to a wedding, uh, someone that we know and we love and we care deeply about, we can't help but be caught up in the emotion that accompanies such an important occasion like we find at a wedding. So that's what takes place here in this royal psalm. It is at the same time a messianic psalm. The words that we see in verse 6, O God, and the use of these verses in the book of Hebrews in our New Testament clearly reference Jesus Christ and indicate that it does have elements of a messianic psalm in it. We don't know about which earthly king and bride it was originally composed about. Most think that it probably fits the marriage of Solomon and the princess of Egypt Our other guesses have been Solomon and a princess of Tyre or Solomon and a princess of Jerom and Athaliah or a Persian king and his bride. Yet even as a song depicting the wedding glories of Solomon, which is the most likely choice, the psalm still seems to require much more for its interpretation because the language is too lofty. It is too lofty to be applied to an earthly king. As one commentator writes, either we have here a piece of poetical exaggeration far beyond the limits of poetic license, or someone greater than Solomon is here. You've seen TV shows or movies that say, based upon a true story. You know what that means? There's been a lot of license granted to make the story be whatever it wants to be, But there is some element of truth to that. And so there might be some element of truth about an earthly king, but what is actually written in Psalm 45 is far too lofty to be true of any earthly king. So we are to assume then that the poet is writing of a specific Jewish king whose identity is not clearly known, but that he is also looking ahead and he is looking upward to that ideal promised king whose perfect and eternal reign 
was foreshadowed through the Jewish monarchy, which began in Saul, reached its heyday through David, and was most splendid in the days of Solomon. So there are a number of Psalms that have messianic elements to them, though they are not in and of themselves completely messianic. Examples are Psalm 8 and Psalm 40, which are partly messianic in its content. And as we see in this one, in Psalm 45, that the New Testament writers incorporated some of it, so it's very clear that there is a messianic element to it. But there are also Psalms which are specifically and almost entirely messianic, and these would include Psalm 2, 16, 22, and 110, and by far most commentators would agree that Psalm 45 is almost entirely messianic, even though it probably took place at the wedding of one of Jerusalem's king. So this psalm has a very short introduction in verse 1. It has a very short conclusion in verses 16 and 17, in which the writer speaks from the first person. And these bracket the main body of the psalm, which can be divided between an address to the groom and an address to the bride. Now, for the sake of time, we're only going to get through the address of the groom, and we'll do some review and pick up the remaining elements of this psalm. So, in order for us to better understand understand Psalm 45, it is helpful for us to know something about ancient betrothal and ancient wedding customs. So, this psalm describes a a procession from the home of the bridegroom to the home of the bride, and then back to the bridegroom's home, along the lines of a traditional wedding day procession. So in ancient times, the first step leading to a wedding was the betrothal. We know something about the betrothal from the New Testament because Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another. What we don't understand is that this is a very formal act It's usually arranged by the parents of the bride and the groom, and it often has, but not always, the wishes of the children taken into account. So it is an arranged marriage. They are betrothed to one another, but the betrothal means so much more than what an engagement means in our day and age. It was actually a legal procedure enacted before witnesses and confirmed by oaths that were taken by the couple. It was so significant that the couple could be called husband and wife even though there was no physical union and even though there was no formal completion of the wedding ceremony. And again, this is exactly what took place in the lives of Mary and Joseph. And if you were in the ancient custom, and by the way, if you were betrothed in some modern communities today around the world, this would take a divorce to break this covenanted union between this man and this woman. So one normal feature of the betrothal was a commitment on the part of the husband's family to provide a dowry. This feature, as well as the respectability and the possibly very young age of the couple, meant that there was often a very long delay 
before the formal wedding ceremony would take place. Sometimes this delay would take several years to complete. So if you think about a betrothal, and most believe that Joseph and Mary, Mary was probably 15 or 16, Joseph was maybe a couple of years older than that, it was very probable that they were betrothed to be married at some future date. So when you were betrothed for some wedding ceremony in the future, when that day finally came, there was incredible celebration that this day had finally come. Think about what takes place in a modern wedding in our culture, a six-month engagement or a 12-month engagement, and when that day finally is here, there is such exuberance, such relief, such joy and excitement. Imagine if it was doubled or tripled in its length of time. So when the wedding day finally came, the friends and the attendants of the bride would gather at the bride's home where she would prepare herself in the finest clothing and jewelry that she possessed. And at the same time, the attendants of the groom would gather at his house for this great period of preparation. Then there would be this grand procession through the streets of the city as the groom and his attendants went to the bride's home. And that would be followed by a procession from the bride's home back to the groom's home, and then both the bride and the groom's entourage would go with the groom back to his home, and that would begin the wedding feast. At the groom's home, there would be a joyful wedding feast, which could last up to two weeks, depending upon the stature and the wealth of the groom's family. Now, if you know nothing about this describing a royal wedding and of it having messianic elements to it, and if you knew nothing about the ancient wedding customs, reading through Psalm 45 would probably leave us scratching our head and wondering why was this included in Scripture. Well, there's a reason, and it's because of what I hope we're going to learn in this today. So we have to keep these movements in mind as we look at Psalm 45. Verses 2 through 9, we see the king coming for his bride, And verses 10 through 12, we find advice that is given to the bride as she waits for her bridegroom. And then in verses 13 through 15, the bride is led out to the king and the procession makes its way to his home and the wedding party enters the palace for the beginning of the wedding feast. So the very final verses of the psalmist's personal blessing upon this marriage and its union. So we're going to read the entirety of the psalm, Psalm 1 through verses 1 through 17, but we're only going to get through verse 9 in our discussion of it today. So let's read together in Psalm 45. My heart overflows with the good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. 
All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen and gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty, because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be, she will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. And the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. (laughs) Interesting psalm, is it not? So let's break this down. Let's look at this. And we're going to look at this today in two major sections. The first one is this, and it is the introduction. This introduction is unlike any other verse contained in all of the Psalms. Verse 1, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The introduction is this. He is going to write about the most glorious subject. So in a psalm that is unique among all the psalms, we find this very unique introduction. The psalmist says, My heart is overflowing with emotion as he has been called upon to write these words about the king. Now if you were asked to give an address at a wedding, it would likely be considered a great honor, whether it be a toast at the reception, whether it be words of welcome in the formal ceremony. But here the psalmist says that his heart is overflowing with emotion. The language is so unusual here that many believe that this phrase, my heart overflows with a good theme, is the psalmist's claim of having special inspiration. It is not just his words about what he has observed about this earthly king, but these are, in fact, inspired words that have been given to him that are very likely going to include a meaning that is far beyond his very own understanding. And that leads us to this question, do the writers of Scripture always understand that they are speaking inspired words by God, probably, but maybe not always, and do they fully understand the content of what they are inspired to write? Probably not. I believe that many, many times in the Scripture, these writers who are inspired by God write down exactly what God has said, although they don't completely understand the future meaning of what they write. That's so true about prophecy. So we could go, we could get very distracted by that, but I don't want to do that. So as the psalmist identifies that his heart overflows with this, with this incredibly special theme, we would say, well, yeah, you should feel that way, because not only are these words fitting 
for the glory of an earthly king, but this is a picture of the heavenly wedding in which the divine groom, Jesus Christ, is going to take his bride, the church, to himself. That, my friend, is the most glorious wedding that the world could ever possibly know when the king of kings takes his rightful bride to himself, you and I, the universal church. So this is not only a good theme, it is the theme of themes. It is the ultimate meaning of all of history. It is the story for all of the ages. Think about this. This psalm is going to give great praise to the great king and it's going to give advice to his bride, us, the church. It is going to describe far more than you and I can even begin to understand and we will one day experience it in its fullness as we are once and for all joined to our bridegroom. So there's no wonder the psalmist is stirred as he considers what it is he has to say in praise of this great king and what the Spirit inspires him to say about the divine king, Jesus himself. So number two in our outline, the psalmist is now going to begin describing the king. So the main body of the psalm begins with the praise of the divine king and the bridegroom, who is none other than Jesus himself. So if these words were written of a mere earthly king, they would probably be understood as typical earthly flattery, right? When you are in the presence of a dignitary, you hear the most flowery speech, and you hear the most eloquent praise given to the individual, and you might actually sit there and say, yeah, I know a little bit better than that. I know what he said. I know what he's done. I understand where you're coming from. And I understand the intent of your words. But these words are really a great exaggeration about who this individual really is. But as the psalmist is inspired to write about the divine king, this description of Jesus, who is the fairest of 10,000, these words are only the smallest part of what actually needs to be said and yet cannot be said in its entirety because he is actually beyond our ability to describe or understand. There's something of a natural sequence in these themes. The first thing that we're going to see that isn't included in your outline and not on the PowerPoint is this. You can write this in if you want. He is above all Others. That's what it means when the psalmist says that he is the fairest of all men. You are fairer than the sons of men. The divine king of this beautiful wedding song is fairer than the sons of men. Now typically, this would speak of one's external appearance. It was often said that in ancient days a king would be chosen for his external appearance because we don't want to have to submit to and look at and follow this thing, this being. In fact, that was one of Saul's challenges is he was not thought to be physically appealing. David was a handsome man. 
People love David for his physical appearance. But this not only speaks of what could be typical of the external qualities of the king, it also speaks of the internal qualities that make him different from and better than all other sons, and most especially over all other kings. Now, we begin to see some of the particular descriptions about the king. Number one, he is gracious in speech. Verse 2 concludes with this, Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. So the speech of the king is filled with grace. Now you think about some of the presidents that we've had, you think about some of the individuals who occupy the highest seat within a land, and I can think back and say, well, you know, that wasn't a very gracious thing to say. That didn't really articulate what would be the best a king could say in that position. But here the psalmist is describing that the king has gracious speech, therefore God has blessed him forever. So when Jesus was on earth, he spoke with both authority and physical appeal so much so that when his enemies were sent excuse me when enemy soldiers were sent to arrest him early on in his ministry we read in John 7:46 the officers answered and said never has a man spoken in this way before they were mesmerized by the content of what Jesus said it was speech that was filled with grace. At the feeding of the 5,000, when there were multitudes of people being fed by Jesus from the small luncheon basket of a little boy, and Jesus was telling them that to be my disciple, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and the people said, that's a hard saying. Who can follow that? Jesus turned to His disciples and said, do you want to depart from Me as well? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And so when Jesus was on the earth, the words that He spoke were filled with grace. They had the ability to still the storm. They had the ability to cast demons out of those that were possessed. He had the ability to restrain His enemies. He had the ability to draw men and women who were trapped in sin and gave to them the gift of faith and enabled them to come to saving faith. And Jesus' gracious words are still spoken today throughout all of His created world. And people come to understand that the King of Kings speaks like no one else. There is salvation under no one other than Jesus. And for that fact alone, Jesus' speech is filled with grace. Grace was poured upon His lips because He has offered salvation to sinful men and women through His sacrificial death. Matthew 20.28 Jesus said, Just as a Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. His life, His words were filled with grace. This divine King has gracious speech in Him because He offers salvation to sinful men. You know, there's not any kings that I am aware of who would willingly sacrifice their own lives for the well-being of their subjects, quite the contrary, 
They would run and flee and escape and be hidden and be protected at all costs. But here Jesus says, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. His gracious speech is far different from any other earthly king. Number two, as we describe the king, he is clothed in righteousness. Now these next three verses, three, four, and five, describe the king's military victories. Now remember, we're talking about an earthly king as well as it being applied to the messianic king. And so since they are being applied to Christ, we must remember that these are describing the spiritual victories that Jesus has won for us, his bride, the church. Verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. Now think about this. If the psalmist is describing simply a military king, why would the sword represent his splendor and his majesty? I wouldn't think that a sword, which in our earthly understanding is an element of death, would be so praiseworthy in the description of a wedding or in the wedding dress of the groom. So to gird is to dress oneself. And here the king is dressed with his sword, which of course we understand in spiritual terms to be what? The sword is the word of God, is it not? So God's word describes not only his character, but it also describes his plans and his purposes. The king's clothing here including the sword, is described as being filled with splendor and majesty. And it speaks not only of the beauty of the clothing, but of the righteousness that exists within the character of the king. Now, in our New Testament, we see this imagery of how one is to be dressed, and it presents a contrast of who we were before Christ and who we are to be because of our union with Christ. Now, here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, verses 22 to 24, In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside your old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So in the Old Testament girding, in Paul's application, the putting on of the clothing with which we are to dress ourselves spiritually is a direct correlation to what the psalmist sees and the earthly dress of the king, and it messianically applies to Jesus himself, who is clothed in splendor and majesty that is consistent with his righteousness and it includes the sword which is the word of God. He is the righteous one and everything he says and everything he does is steeped in righteousness including what he does with the spiritual sword, the word of God. Thirdly, in this description of the king, we see that he is seeking God's ideals. Verse 4, again describing this militaristic event or activity. And in your majesty, 
ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. So, as the psalmist describes the king's activities, he isn't seeking his own purposes. He isn't seeking his own praise or his own glory. He seeks after the Father's ideals, which are, not coincidentally, his own. In the majestic clothing of the King of Kings, he rides how? He rides victoriously, accomplishing God's purposes in the world. I don't know how we could envision an earthly king who is proceeding to the bride's house as marching on victoriously. It speaks of something so much far be so much further beyond this procession to the bride's house. So here this activity is described as truth, meekness, and righteousness. These describe what the king is fighting for, and they describe what his enemies also stand against. So he is riding on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Truth. It describes who God is, who man is, what man needs, and how God is going to judge with His righteous sword based upon his own standards and not standards set by some sinful, selfishly driven king. That's what truth is. Ken, here you're on. Ken, are you ready? What is meekness? One word. It's humility. We've been studying this in our Bible study. Meekness is humility. The meek shall inherit the kingdom of God. Inherit the kingdom of God. The humble will inherit the kingdom of God. It describes how we are to come before God. It is an appropriate understanding of His holiness and of our need for Him and of the forgiveness that He extends to those who come humbly before Him. Think about this. When Isaiah was in the temple... God appeared and Isaiah said that the hem of His robe filled the temple. And Isaiah's response is, Woe is me! I am a man that is undone because I am a man of unclean hands and an unclean heart and I live amongst the people with unclean hands and an unclean heart. Isaiah was so humbled at the presence of God that God saw fit to dispense to him the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that Isaiah so desperately needed and that Isaiah so accurately understood. And so when you and I come before the throne of grace, we don't kick in the door and say, God, here I am. I am entitled. What are you going to give to me? How are you going to change my circumstances? What is it you're going to do for me today? We come before Him and we say, Oh God, God, who was so holy and who was so righteous and who was so merciful. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of an unclean heart. And I need your forgiveness. I desire your mercy. I come humbly before you, deserving nothing, but simply desiring that you would look upon me with favor. This is what Jesus fights for as He rides on victoriously. That He in truth 
and in meekness would accomplish God's plans and purposes in the third trait that he describes here, and that is in righteousness. Carrying out judgment based upon the truth of God and upon His standards. Here's what you and I need to be reminded of right now is this. Because at some point in our life, you and I have come humbly before the Lord and He has graciously given to us the forgiveness that we so desperately need when Jesus comes to judge righteously based upon the standards of God and He raises His sword against the unjust, He is going to see His own righteousness which has been impugned to us through our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You and I don't get what we are entitled to. You and I don't get what we deserve. You and I receive the merciful hand of God who graciously spoke to us words of salvation. This picture of Jesus riding victoriously and marching, pursuing truth and humility and righteousness is remarkably similar to the imagery that we see in Revelation 19.11. And that is this. I didn't get the verse in there. I'm sorry. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Everything that God does is just Everything that God does is steeped in His righteousness. And this is what Jesus is writing victoriously to accomplish in the world today. Truth, meekness, and righteousness. This little phrase here, let your right hand teach you awesome things, can also be translated, let your right hand display awesome deeds which would describe God's actions in accomplishing His ideals through His right hand, which is none other than Jesus Himself. Most certainly God's actions supporting truth and humility and righteousness and fighting against the forces of evil is realized daily in the salvation of lost souls and daily in the continuous spiritual victory that God makes available to His children. You see, Him riding victoriously for truth and humility and for righteousness does not end at the cross. It continues as you and I desire to honor Him and please Him and serve Him and find continuous victory over our continual battle with the presence of sin all around us. The fourth description that we have here is His victory is certain. I hope you will circle this in your outline as we look at the corruption in our culture, as we look at the, at the hopelessness that exists in our world, as we look at the challenges that we face today and being who God has called us to be and in doing better what God has called us to do, that we will remember that His victory is certain. Verse 5, Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your enemies are in the heart 
of the king's, excuse me, your arrows are in the heart of your king's enemies. Again, a very strange way of describing a king on his wedding day, but we know that this has eschatological application as we think about the return of Christ and his once and for all conquering all of the enemies of the cross. There is no one thing, there is no one person that can ever stop this king from being victorious. Now, let me ask you this. Can that be said about any earthly king? No, it cannot. It cannot even be said about the earthly king that this song or psalm or poet Poetry was actually written about because as you and I know, if Solomon is the actual king who was having these words written about him, we know that it wasn't long after Solomon's rule that God disciplined the nation of Israel and they were invaded by foreign enemies and they were exiled into other countries and they lived in incredible hardship like they had never ever imagined before and there is no earthly king that is unconquerable But this divine king that our psalmist writes about, his victory is certain. There is no one and there is no thing that can ever, ever change that. God's kingdom cannot be stopped and it will be victorious against all God's enemies. And how is this victory won? It is not won by might. It is not won in wars. It is simply won through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a spiritual victory that will one day render all of God's physical enemies forever and forever defeated at His feet. We read in Philippians 2, verses 8-11, through 11, speaking of Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, rendering all of God's enemies defeated at the cross. His victory is certain. Number five, His rule is eternal. Again, cannot be said about any earthly king, but it is divinely spoken in a messianic prophecy about the king who will rule forever. Verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So this verse right here makes very, very clear that the inspired words of the psalmist is describing something other than an earthly king. As he describes the virtues of this earthly king, as embellished as they may be, he is also describing more fully what is true about Jesus, the divine king. Now, how this verse is translated in our Bibles is critical to how we understand it. So there have been many attempts to sidestep what is very clearly said in this verse. For example, some take take the word God and they change it to mean divine and they translate the phrase, your divine throne. 
Others say things like, your throne is like God's throne, eternal, and your throne is God's forever and ever. Thus the Revised Standard Version has, your divine throne. The New English Bible has, your throne is like God's throne. And other versions likewise try to avoid the clear meaning of the text where it very, very clearly says, O oh God, your throne is eternal. It needs to be noted that the most ancient manuscripts that man has ever found support the reading that says, Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. And, oh, by the way, that truth is spoken at other points in our New Testament. For example, when Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her of the child that she was going to give birth to, he said this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Verse 6 in our text is also directly quoted in Hebrews 1.8 as the writer of Hebrews describes the eternal glory of Christ. And so you'll notice in Hebrews 1.8 the all capital words that you see here, which indicates it is a direct transcribing of what is said in the Old Testament. And he repeats word for word, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. So God's rule is forever, it is eternal, and the spiritual king the psalmist describes is the one who establishes it, and it is speaking of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The scepter is symbolic of the king's rule, and it is described as being upright, which is consistent with the unimpeachable character of the divine king being described by the psalmist. Number six describes that he has God's anointing. Verse 7 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So because of who he is as the divine righteous king, God loves what he loves and hates, excuse me, he loves what God loves and he hates what God hates. God has anointed him as the king. Just as the bridegroom is anointed with oil before his wedding, just as a king is coronated and anointed with oil before he ascends to the throne, God has anointed this spiritual king with oil, indicating his blessings upon his rule and upon his actions that he carries out as the right hand of the Father in the pursuit of truth and meekness and righteousness. Number seven, he is prepared. Verse eight says, All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments, excuse me, stringed instruments have made you glad. So the psalmist now describes the physical readiness of the groom. After describing his outward preparation, after expounding upon his internal characteristics, he now describes what appears to be the readiness for the formal wedding ceremony. The, the readiness of the groom, 
with his clothing smelling of the best fragrances that are available. He also describes the opulent palace where this wedding is going to take place. It is adorned with ivory. There are sounds of festive music that has made his heart filled with joy as he is ready to receive his, his bride. Verse 9 says, King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen and gold from Ophir. So the bride comes adorned in the best gold as he sees her. Ophir has never been identified with any certainty, but it is widely assumed that it is likely in the southern southern part of Arabia between Mecca and Medina and was noted for its high quality of gold. And so the bride, who is now being met by her groom, is accompanied by women of the royal family as she is now taking the hand of the groom and is about to be led back to the palace for the wedding ceremony to begin. The king has been wonderfully described And as I want to reiterate, it is a description of our spiritual king who is gracious in speech, speaking the gospel message for the forgiveness of sin through the cross that he so willingly died upon. He is clothed in righteousness as the Son of God, seeking God's ideals of truth and humility and righteousness. His victory is certain. He cannot be stopped. His rule is eternal. It will go on forever and forever and forever. And He has God's anointing as the One, as the Messiah, as the long-awaited groom of the nation Israel and of the people of God throughout all of time. He's ready for the ceremony as as his bride is presented to him. And so this marriage, which is going to continue to be described, this long-anticipated event, which in the king's life has probably taken a couple of years, in our lives, this wedding is presented as the New Testament marriage supper of the Lamb. And you and I have been waiting for this all the days of our salvation, and this marriage supper of the Lamb is communicated to us in Revelation 19, verses 7-9. through Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The eschatological forward thinking of our being joined together with Jesus who is the groom of the church. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints based on His truth, steeped in humility. Then He said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and He said to me, These are true words of God. You and I, as the Bride of Christ, God has made ready our groom, who is more fair than any other individual we could even begin to imagine. And our vocabulary is inadequate to accurately, completely, thoroughly describe the greatness of the God that He is. And yet He has chosen to look down upon us 
and enable us to know who He is. He has given to us the faith to accept the truth about what He has done. He has indwelt us and sealed us in the Holy Spirit so that you and I can be looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that will be culminated when the King returns to judge His enemies in righteousness and in truth. And you and I have been spared of that righteous judgment because you and I have been covered in the blood of the Lamb on the cross. Would you pray with me please? Father, words are inadequate to express what should be the overwhelming attitude of thanks that is in our hearts. Understanding who you are and what you've done for us should move us to speechlessness. We should just sit in awe of who you are and marvel at the glory that is you and unendingly give you thanks for what you've done for us through Christ. Regardless of how difficult our days have been, regardless of how difficult our days might become, you are worthy of all the praise and all the glory and all the honor that we could ever muster to present to you through the lives that we live. So Father, we pray that you would in some way, see all these truths that we've examined in our hearts in such a way that we would be moved to willingly let go of sin, to willingly pick up the righteous clothing that you have made available to us, and with great determination strive to live lives that are pure and holy and pleasing to you. Father, how we thank you that your forgiveness is complete. We thank you that your grace and mercy are inexhaustible and in humility we acknowledge our desperate need for that. So Father, we give to you our thanks. And we pray that you would continue, as your word says, to complete the work you began in us and carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray.